You might think that the civil rights movement ended in the 1960s, but America is still a deeply divided country. In recent years, thanks to high-profile cases of racially motivated police brutality, Black Lives Matter has become a global movement. So in this episode, we explore what it is, why now, and what this means for the US, as we ask, what challenge does Black Lives Matter represent to America? Welcome to America, a history podcast. I'm Liam Heffernan, and every week we answer a different question to understand the people, the places, and the events that make the USA what it is today. Returning from the faculty this week is Dr. Nicholas Grant, a historian of 20th century United States and author of Winning Our Freedoms Together, African Americans and Apartheid, 1945-1960. His research focuses on race, internationalism and transnational activism. Hello again, Nick. Hi, Liam. Thanks again for having me back. It's uh, great to have you on the podcast. And... Uh, you know, it's a big subject. Uh, I don't think it's something we're going to do justice to in about half an hour. Uh, and uh, it's definitely something we're going to have to uh, get you back on to, to to dive more into. So let's just start with, I say the basics, it's not, but from the beginning. Uh, what is the history of Black Lives Matter? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Linking back to, to what we talked about when when we did the episode about the civil rights movement, I think we absolutely need to see the recent emergence of Black Lives Matter in the 21st century as part of this longer struggle for racial justice in the US. As you've mentioned in the introduction, like racism obviously didn't disappear in the 1960s with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Um, so I think we need to see this as a long and interconnected intergenerational struggle um, and I think that's really important um, for a few reasons I think it's important because it reminds us of the resilience of black people in the US and what they've faced how racism has changed over time it's important because it reminds us of the ongoing nature of the struggle against systemic racism that black people are engaged in in the United States and I think also which is again something we touched upon on the civil rights episode is that I think it acts as a warning to think about black protest to think about racial justice in the 21st century in America as a warning against any sort of complacency white complacency when it comes to thinking about race and the progress that America has made because although America has made you know, some notable progress in terms of civil rights, in terms of race and representation and, and thinking about racial justice, as these recent protests have shown, the structures and the institutional forms of racism uh, and how they function in the United States are still very much in place. Um, so I think that's really important to note. Yeah, so I think that that's kind of what I would say about that, very much past related to the present. I think specifically, though, in terms of the historical context of the Black Lives Matter movement, I'm sure some people would disagree with that. But in terms of thinking about it in terms of politically and in political and ideological terms, I think Black Lives Matter is probably most closely related to the Black Power movement, both in which started emerging in the 1960s, both in terms of how Black Power critiqued how racism worked at an institutional level, 
the emphasis that Black Power and the Black Lives Matter movement has on policing and, and the criminal justice system and the way in which both of those movements talked about um, and talk about what it means to be black in the United States and, and how they represent blackness. Having said that, though, I think there are elements of the more classical phase of the civil rights movement, thinking about mass civil disobedience, nonviolent protest, um, the importance of taking to the streets to make a political point, which were obviously there long before the emergence of the Black Power movement in the 1960s. So yeah, just to return to that point, I think very much we need to see these struggles as connected and maybe Black Lives Matter as the next phase in the longer Black freedom struggle. So uh, at what point did it stop being the civil rights movement and, and start being Black Lives Matter? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think, you know, the civil rights are still the call for civil rights and thinking about, you know, criminal justice and policing, you know, these are civil rights issues. But I think the way in which activists talk about that more today is about the need to think about more fundamental human rights, to think about how do you live as a free person? How do you access all of the rights available to you that we should all be guaranteed as human beings, right? The idea of, of that Black Lives Mattering is, you know, the idea of Black life being important is is a fundamental human right. So I think there's been a lot of work historically done, right, to think about the law and to think about legislative changes, to think about the ways in which Black people in the United States can be more fully included into that system of American democracy. But that doesn't mean that racism is solved, right? And actually, that might tackle some issues. Those issues can sometimes be rolled back quite easily as well, which is important to remember. But to think about things in terms of um, housing, to think about things in terms of education, to think about the way in which the American economy might work to disadvantage certain groups of people, I think that's where we've seen that shift away from just civil rights, even though that's still really, really important. And you know, things about voter suppression, things about access to education, things about affirmative action are still in the news today. So they, that's not a done deal. But also to think more broadly about how do you change society? How do you change American democracy? How do you change systems to to make sure that black lives truly do matter in the 21st century? Yeah. And, you, you know, you've touched on issues around voter suppression. Uh, uh, also, there's access to education, um, the abuse of, of power and authority that comes with the police brutality. And, and George Floyd comes to mind here as a particularly high profile example that seemed to take the issues of Black Lives Matter um, from being a, a purely American fight to, to being very much a, a global one. So I guess I'd like to talk about Black Lives Matter for a minute as a global movement as well as purely an American one um, and, and how that sort of fits in. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's really important to think about Black Lives Matter in its American context and in its specific context in terms of, in terms of thinking about African-American history, politics and culture. But absolutely, you know, what was particularly notable about particularly Black Lives Matter in 2020 when it kind of reemerged is just how far and widespread that message carried and, and the protests, not just in, in solidarity, but not just in solidarity, um, how they span, span the globe, really. I think there's a couple of really important things to think about there that might help us understand the scale and the scope of Black Lives Matter in 2020 and why it's spread around the world. I guess the first thing I would say uh, is to think about Black Lives Matter in the US and the protests in 2020 and the scale of those as being really staggering. So that was really historically 
unprecedented. The size and the, the, the repeated nature of those protests for days and days on end hadn't really even been seen during the, the classical phase of the civil rights movement. And this, of course, like captured headlines, made international headlines and made the struggle that black people, young people, white people who were rallying around that, that banner of Black Lives Matter in 2020 visible to lots of people around the world. I think the second thing, of course, is the pandemic that was going on now. It's, I think it's true that pandemics often go hand in hand with social upheaval, historically speaking. But COVID in particular was really stark in terms of how it made clear how racial injustice works. So if we think about mortality rates and issues of access to healthcare, if we think about the racial makeup of the people who were, who were classified as key workers and didn't have the luxury to, to work from home and that kind of stuff and how exposed they were to the virus. If we think about issues to do with housing and the racialized dimensions of poverty. And to get back to your question, like these are issues that aren't just unique to the United States. They're very pronounced in the United States, but people were thinking about those issues and the effects of the pandemic were, were playing out in racialized ways internationally as well. So what people were thinking about in terms of the pandemic and police brutality and Black Lives Matter, I think translated well to other contexts uh, too. I think finally, the other point I would say in terms of, of that general context is Trump was uh, a huge factor, I think, in terms of mobilizing people as a real marker of the rise of white nationalism uh, in the US. But again, that is not a uniquely American phenomenon, right? We're thinking today about the rise of white nationalist politics globally in, in places like Hungary and Italy, in the UK, I would argue as well, although we might not like to see it that way. Um, so I think people were thinking about what does it mean to have a, a white nationalist president in the White House and how is that playing out internationally? And people were looking at the US as a focal point, but also seeing echoes of that playing out in their own surrounding. So this sparked protests well beyond the borders of the US, as I'm sure you know, listeners are aware, like throughout Canada, Mexico, uh, Colombia, um, Jamaica, I mean, I'm just listing names of places now, but pretty much everywhere in the world had had Black Lives Matter protesters taking to the streets in 2020. And as I said before, like these were very much acts of solidarity in solidarity with people like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery. But I think there were also more than that. Um, I think these protests were connected deliberately anti-Black racism in the United States to different localized experiences of racial violence and discrimination and inequality in other settings, right? And I think these activists, what was really striking about that moment is how they forged a real global vision for Black lives and how they linked their struggles up beyond national borders and interrogate the ways in which legacies of slavery, colonialism, uh, imperialism continued to shape um, societies everywhere today. And I think these activists know that those forces are global forces, right, historically. If we're talking about slavery, if we're talking about empire and colonialism, those aren't confined to particular nations. Racism in America isn't the only version of racism, and actually those systems connect different forms of racial discrimination around the world. And I think people around the world were thinking through the legacies of those things in really interesting and important ways. And they weren't saying what we experience here in Britain or what we experience here in Australia is the same as what African-Americans experience in the United States. But I think they're saying it was connected and they were thinking that there were echoes of, of how racism plays out, anti-black racism plays out in America and how anti-black racism plays out in other parts of the world too. And there's that saying that uh, every action has a, an equal and opposite reaction. And, and I wonder if the fact that 
that not just in America but globally there's been this I guess growth in in in, in influence amongst uh, the far right and um, political parties you know you can argue Trump is is quite far right but also you know Italy have uh, in the last few years have uh, been electing uh, far right parties and um, Marine Le Pen in France is her profile is growing and she's widely tipped to be the next leader and you you could even argue Boris has sort of pivoted the Tories far more towards the right than they than they had been under David Cameron and without wanting to seem too insensitive I, I, I wonder if there's almost in part credit due to this kind of emergence of the right in global politics that has kind of by proxy given a voice to the the far left um, who are um, so uh, vocal against them. Mm. Yeah, I think, and I think it's, I think it's a activists are looking at that and, and thinking about, is this a new form of fascism? Is this a new form of white nationalism and seeing that as, as a threat, as a threat to to the lives and livelihoods and ways of living of people who aren't who aren't white around the world, and I think that they're, they're accurate in that in that assumption, and accurate in those connections that 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 people are drawing. I think what's really striking in terms of how the right, broadly defined, talks about Black Lives Matter, is the is the hostility to it. And the way in which those movements seem quite threatened to what is, I think, relatively a simple demand of like recognizing the value of of black life, right? And how movements and and presidents like Trump and and politicians have used that as issues to to kind of say, look, you know, these are the the extremists, the anarchists, the radical Marxist forces that want to transform and take your country away from you, and we can't let that happen. So I think that's quite telling. I think that's telling because it it shows just how the lengths people are willing to go in lots of different societies. But let, let's just talk about the United States in terms of protecting their interests and privileges and standing in society, the unwillingness to to change and to to think about the history and the legacies and the contemporary politics of, of white supremacy and how that still shapes America today. But also it's maybe a, a kind of hopeful message as well in that, the, the the call for Black Lives Matter, the fact that it gets so much backlash, how politicians use it as a rallying cry to to try and prevent change. I think that's important because it shows that it's touching a nerve and it's actually challenging something that that is at the root of of the way in which systems of oppression work and that people are willing to try and defend them. So whenever I see like politicians saying, you know, critiquing Black Lives Matter, I almost think that those politicians are are rattled that they know actually that their ground are their their white nationalist politics there isn't you know is, is maybe being shifted shifting underneath them a little bit and they can't really go anywhere else other than to go further further right and i think actually society on a whole maybe it doesn't seem like that but particularly younger generation of people are quite are more willing to make those changes so i'm hoping i'm hopeful this is a bit of a garbled response but in terms of that kind of the re- relationship between the left and the black lives matter movement and more reactionary forces and conservative forces i'm hoping in a hopeful way interpreting that as like this might be hopefully the death knell of of white nationalist politics of of extreme right-wing politics because actually the black lives matter movement has been an educational moment in lots of ways for a lot of people who haven't really thought that critically about race and might be a sign of like a movement that that is dying out that they, they're going further right because that's all they can do um, and actually that, that maybe more people are on board 
with some of the central demands of the of the Black Lives Matter movement and what that represents in lots of different contexts. But what I'm really curious to to understand is why now? Because as we've discussed, civil rights is a battle that's been fought for, for centuries in America. So, so what does the proliferation of the, the Black Lives Matter movement tell us about today's America? Yeah, I think it tells us about the way in which white supremacy is entrenched within America. It tells us, I think, about the way in which ideas of freedom and notions of freedom that are central to the American ideals and how America likes to see itself are actually bound up in ideas of racial exclusion, that that freedom actually often means white freedom for a lot of people uh, in the United States. I think it tells us again about the dangers of white nationalism, that it's real, that it's pressing, that people are responding to that. And I think it, it tells us about the inability of America to reform in lots of ways as well when it comes to race. That even though these changes have been made over time, that America hasn't quite got to the root of tackling issues of racial exclusion, the extent to which American society is built on the foundations of white supremacy, of wrestling away that concept of freedom away from whiteness as well, and the defensiveness of groups to try and protect that status, both in terms of wanting to protect the status quo, but also the real material things that come with, I guess, white white privilege as well. I think the other thing it might tell us in terms of thinking about the state of America and, and why now, um, and again, this comes back to the earlier point that I think I was making, was the unfinished work of the civil rights and uh, movement and of the black freedom movement and of things like black power. And that's not to say that those movements failed and that they weren't operating in a way that they should have done and those activists somehow didn't quite get the job done. But I think we need to think about that struggle as a continuation, one that is unending, that may never have an end as well. And again, to think about Black Lives Matter as a next phase in that struggle, as a way of expanding certain demands of of freedom, of like thinking about institutional racism and systemic racism and how you might tackle those things. And about thinking about how you might expand the notion of American democracy in a way that's truly representative. Um, and again, to move from that framework of a quite a narrow civil rights struggle to a broader struggle for, for human rights as well. And I think that's what Black Lives Matter is doing. And I think it helps us shine a light on America to show that this is how far America has come, but this is also how far it needs to go in order to to grapple with the, the legacies of racial injustice, how freedom has been defined as white freedom in America, and for those those systems to be to be overcome as well. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be very simplistic here, and I, I realise that I, I I am being so, but surely we can all agree, regardless of of which side of the political fence you're on, um, whatever your background is, surely we can all agree that racism is bad, that people should be treated equally and given the same fundamental rights as each other. And that seemed to have been ratified in the 1960s when the the Civil Rights Act was put in. That was the government saying we can't segregate or discriminate based on race. So why is it proving so difficult 
to get equality in America. I think that's how we think about racism is the key there, right? And again, like to think about racism is not just legislative change that is maybe state mandated, but to think about how that is at play in the way in which our economy works, the way in which institutions work, in the way in which representation works as well. And I think if you look at the demands of the Black Lives Matter movement, so in, I want to say, I'm going to blank on the on the date here, but I think it was around about 2016, 2017, the movement for Black Lives in the United States um, issued um, a policy platform document. And if you look at that document, and what's really striking, right, like we see this movement coming out of responses to police brutality, the killing of, of unarmed black men and women by police officers in the United States. And, and often that's how people first and foremost think about the Black Lives Matter movement. And that was really important. But if you look at that policy document, it's about fundamentally transforming the meaning of American liberal democracy and critiquing that as well. It's calling about radical economic transformation, radical changes to political power for community control, for black communities uh, and enhancing that, talking about reparations and reparative justice and what that might mean in terms of investing at both a state and a, a federal level in terms of providing resources, financial and educational resources in particular to disadvantaged communities, right? And that would take a huge redistribution of wealth. It would take transforming the system of American capitalism it would mean that actually we're going to say things like uh, we're going to privilege historically marginalized groups over other groups. And I think that's where America and a lot of white Americans draw the line. And they say, look, we're, we're about freedom and democracy. We're about liberty for all. We have civil rights, but we shouldn't go further to redress those historical and, and contemporary inequalities because that would be a some form of reverse racism. That would be going too far and that would be upsetting things too much. And I think this is at root to do with people's how people operate in the world and, and certain privileges that, that they maybe expect as opposed to their racial group and what they're willing to give up and what they're willing to not give up. Um, so I think people are, are happy to talk about American democracy in a nice kind of cuddly American exceptionalist way of like the greatest democracy on earth, but are less willing to be critical of those systems of democracy and to actually do anything that would radically change that so that you can properly address systemic racism, racial violence, and racial inequality in America. So I think it's about the limitations of how we think about racism and how we think about it on a surface level of like just, well, a racist is someone who maybe is a member of the Klan or a neo-Nazi or something like that, and not how systems work, right? And that's kind of why I was saying that I think Black Lives Matter is is closely related to the Black Power movement, because the Black Power movement was about thinking about those systems. So in 1967, uh, Stokely Carmichael and Charles Hamilton, who were members of, of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee at the time, published a book called Black Power, where they they didn't quite coin the phrase into institutional racism, but a lot of that book is about thinking about how racism isn't just a few bad apples, a few, it isn't just the Klan, it isn't just white Southerners. It's baked into American society. It's baked into the history and the politics of American institutions. And I think there's still, in the 21st century, an unwillingness to, to really take that seriously on behalf of a lot of white Americans or, or people with power and influence in America and to really 
it would take the massive redistribution of wealth, which is which isn't what American society is really about. It would take questioning the system of American capitalism, which is is sacrosanct in America, right? Yeah, and this this leads into uh, the final thing I wanted to to discuss, and perhaps the most contentious, because a lot of critics of Black Lives Matter will say, well, you know, all lives matter. It's not just about black lives. So it's almost taken this this opinion that it would be positive discrimination. Black Lives Matter is all about giving black people uh, more rights than white people. It's about tipping the scales the other way. That's you know you hear that kind of of, of, of rhetoric a lot amongst the critics of, of Black Lives Matter. So I'm going to just ask the question: Is Black Lives Matter just about black lives? So I think that that links really nicely to what we we were just talking about. I think that response is really telling because it is about the unwillingness, as you're saying, to fundamentally change. Right, and that phrase for me, all white, all lives matter, is about is a very kind of example of, of what the sociologist Robin D'Angelo calls white fragility. It's about the desire, like, well, what about us? How are you saying that I don't matter if you're saying black lives matter? And that's really not what that is about at all, right? Black Lives Matter is not an exclusionary phrase. They're not saying that only black lives matter. They're saying that black lives matter. We need to remind people of that because of the historical and political circumstances in which black people find themselves in the United States and around the world. That system of of racial violence, anti-black racism, how it operates means that people need to be reminded that black lives matter. And it's about talking about the historical and political realities of, of anti-blackness. So to me, that kind of like all lives matter response is, is, is staggering in a way. And it's very a sense of like insecurity there and and a sense of, of maybe like why, why some sections of, the Amer- of American society will, won't ever want to change because it's an incredibly selfish response and it lacks empathy in a lot of way. And it's about protecting white racial privilege and the material benefits of that. And I don't think Black Lives Matter is only about black lives, right? Despite despite saying that, right? It's about how you have a more just and equal society. And I think in a society where black lives matter, that's a society that's better for everyone, right? It's a society where you, you live up to your ideals, where ideals of freedom and democracy are actually properly implemented. It's a society where people's basic human rights are respected, where levels of privilege and access are, are, are transformed and people could actually, you know, have an equal playing field in terms of, of things to do with education and jobs and, and other things as well. So, yeah, I think it, it's not just about black lives. It's about the state of American society, about the state of democracy. It's about grappling with these histories of empire, colonialism, imperialism and slavery and how they play out around the world today. And I think also it's a starting point as well for maybe more radical solidarities, right? There's a, a really good book that came out a couple of years ago by by Kyle Mays, who is a Native American and Black scholar. And his book is called An Afro-Indigenous History of the United States. And, and whilst he's very supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement, he thinks about what would it mean for the Black Lives Matter movement to 
connect with the histories and racial inequalities of settler colonialism and of indigenous people in America? How might a Black Lives Matter movement also reach out and work alongside people calling for indigenous rights and challenging those legacies of settler colonialism in America too? So I think also it's a, it's a framework which can bring in more people. And again, to, I guess maybe to end on a more optimistic note, if you look at those protests, particularly in 2020, and you look at if you put in news uh, into YouTube, um, Black Lives Matter protest 2020, and you look at the people who were there on the ground, despite the the reaction of all lives matter, or like what about blue lives matter, police lives, and all of that kind of stuff, the people who were there protesting were young multiracial groups of Americans uh, or or people around the world, right? And I think that is really striking that enough people went out into the streets to defend this idea of black lives being important, to think about what that might mean, to think about their privilege and how they might be a good ally and all of this kind of stuff. And sure, there are limitations to that. And sure, like we might question what's happened since 2020. But I think that was a really inspiring thing. Again, these unprecedented protests in terms of longevity, scale, geographical scope, and who was out on the streets. And it wasn't just black people in black neighborhoods. It was people from all different backgrounds all different kind of economic groups, all different racial groups, predominantly young people, but not exclusively. And I think that's a really kind of important thing to note when we think about what Black Lives Matter means and the challenge that it represents uh, for us in the 21st century, both in the US and, and internationally. This episode of America, a history podcast, was produced by me, Liam Heffernan. A special thanks to our guest this week, Dr. Nick Grant. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to check out the resources in the show notes. And we put an awful lot of work into making this podcast happen. So if you can leave us a rating and a nice review wherever you're listening, that would be amazing. Next time, we take a closer look at the man who inspired Norman Bates, Leatherface and others as we ask, who is Ed Gein? Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.